Welcome to Oncology Today, a discussion of papers and presentations from the ASH 2021 meeting focused on B-cell lymphomas. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. For this program, I met with Dr. Matthew Lunning from the University of Nebraska Medical Center. In addition to this audio podcast, there is also a corresponding video program with Dr. Lunning's slide presentation. To begin, we talked about the many papers from ASH focusing on diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, and I asked him to provide his personal overview of how he views non-Hodgkin lymphomas. When you started out there talking about diffuse large B-cell, you had a slide that said aggressive lymphomas. Does that apply to more than just diffuse large B-cell? Because then I don't know if that was just referring to that or you had mantle cell after that. Yeah, when I talk to my patients about the spectrum of non-Hodgkin's lymphomas in general, I try to classify them in two different uh, camps. And I say I have my left-hand lymphomas and I have my right-hand lymphomas. Okay, and my left-hand lymphomas make up my indolent lymphomas. The lymphomas that are often found incidentally on a CAT scan in people who are going for a check for pulmonary nodules because of exposures or because they have a cough and they find an axillary lymph node. And those lymphomas classically are treatable, but not necessarily curable by the definition of the textbook. And then when I speak to my right-hand lymphomas, I typically say that those are my aggressive lymphomas that typically people notice because something's rapidly enlarging or because they're making them ill. But in those lymphomas, the intent is for me to treat them with curative intent. And if I don't treat them, that lymphoma is likely to take their life in a matter of weeks to months. The next sentiment is that mantle cell lymphoma sits with both legs on either side of the side of that fence. I see mantle cell lymphoma that can behave indolently and that you can monitor like a follicular lymphoma or marginal zone lymphoma. So my classic left-hand lymphomas, but I've also seen mantle cell lymphoma that's making somebody incredibly sick and needs therapy faster than some of my diffuse large B cell lymphomas. And obviously, in my right-hand lymphoma camp, I include Burkitt lymphoma and the majority of our peripheral T-cell lymphomas in that realm. And I'm a believer that peripheral T-cell lymphoma can be cured with upfront chemotherapy. So that's how I try and explain and break up not only to my patients, but also to individuals that I go out and speak to about non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And inherently, then, Hodgkin's lymphoma falls into my right-hand lymphomas because I think it's a curable intent lymphoma in multiple different lines of therapy, just like a lot of our aggressive lymphomas. That's a really great concept. I also like your term lymphomaniacs. Is that your thing? Did you come up with that? That's Dr. Vose's name for our group for uh, Leukemia Research Foundation. Is that right? So I have stolen that from her, but I think it. Uh, I think that many of us who think about lymphoma every day, we get on these Zoom calls now. And it's just great to be able to chat about them, about what's driving them mad at this time point in therapy in lymphoma. Well, let's uh, jump into the middle of it then in terms of uh, things that will be of great interest, because this is definitely a historic ASH meeting, particularly in terms of diffuse large B cell. You talked about the Polaris trial and reviewed its finding. We had Laurie Sen on a webinar recently, and we asked her about it, and she said, well, about one in four relapses are avoided that you would get with uh, RCHOP without any price to pay, at least in terms of toxicity. You can talk about uh, financial, et cetera. Do you see the investigator community just flipping right over? Is this practice changing for most people? I think that 
in my practice, I think it will be in the right patient population. I think there are patient populations that were in that trial that I'm just not quite ready to switch over. What would that population be? I think my double hit, triple hit population, if I know going into it that they have that, I still do treat those patients with dose-adjusted EPOC-R. I am a believer in, in dose adjustment too. I think that that belief kind of came from the decades of data with those outcomes. And I think that I would be willing, though, in the right setting to put those patients on a clinical trial because I think that population needs to be pulled out, needs to be studied in a clinical trial because it was about one in 20 patients had double or triple hit biology. And I guess maybe that's just what we know about. The other thing that I think that this study put the rest is it was agnostic to the GTB ABC connotation. We tried to split that group up and do trials off of that and failed, both in regards to things like abrutinib and also in regards to lenalidomide. So really it kind of takes some of that thought out of the regimen also. I think that we're going to find molecular signatures, though, that have been highlighted by several groups that are going to allow us to continue to refine the induction therapy. So does this become the new control arm to a lot of randomized trials, I think is what everybody's asking. And I think that I don't get to make that decision. There's a group that sit in D.C. that often gets to make that decision. What becomes the new control arm in our randomized trials? Well, maybe I'll be the first one to predict. <laughs> I just can't see how somebody's going to go in a trial with the control arm of our chop, but maybe, I don't know. Yeah, I think it's, it's pretty interesting because there's a lot of midstream trials right now kind of scratching their head, knowing what to do. Yeah. I think it's going to really depend upon, are they 10 patients away or are they 500 patients away from their accrual goals? And, you know, speaking, before we get on to the, the CAR-T uh, second line trials, speaking of double hit, you commented on the Zuma 12 study presented at ASH that included, I think, double hit patients and data looked pretty good. To me, that'd be kind of where I'd want to see my patient go. Most of them, anyhow, you tell me. Yeah, I think that they're doing the right thing. and We're trying to enrich for that population that's destined to fail chemotherapy. Inherently, I think that a double hit, triple hit population can be one of them. I think the biggest is double hit, triple hit plus IPI score. Four to five have always been hard to get into a trial, but they're also hard to get to a center that could do a trial like uh, Zuma 12. And so how can you take this trial and move it out to the masses, I think could be one of the barriers to it because you are doing interim PET scans. But I guess on the back end, you have the reliance that you've done the PETAL study, which had a very similar trial design, but that was kind of upping the ante in chemotherapy. And here you're upping the ante in regards to a cellular therapy. And so assuming that PET2 is predictive enough to say that if you're PET2, double four or five, you should go on and get CAR T-cell therapy, I think we have to be mindful that I think PET4s are a very difficult thing. I call them clinic killers. Because a lot of us were spoiled now. We can get PET scans in the morning and see the patients in the afternoon for cycle three. And if you get that Doleville 4, the first thing I'm doing is I'm ringing up my nuclear radiologist and I go, let's talk through this. Is this a very good partial response or is this barely past stable disease? And I think that that's the connotation between fours and fives is a Doleville score isn't perfect in this regards. And you have to admit 
you know, likely in Zuma 12, there's probably a population of people that may not have needed the CAR T-cell therapy and could have gone on to get their induction therapy and, and potentially been cured. But how many, what's that population? And only a randomized trial is going to sort that out for you. What would you rather go through, RCHOP or CAR-T in terms of toxicity? I've seen people work through RCHOP and dose-adjusted EPOC-R, and I've seen it put people into a facility needing rehabilitation. And typically what does that for that second population is not necessarily the chemotherapy, it's the infections that come on with it. And I think that while we've gotten better at managing the CAR T-cell toxicities, I still think that it has baggage to it. Baggage in regards to logistical challenges of where you have to be for a period of time. There's the baggage of the cytopenias that come and the baggage of an inherent infection risk. And so I think people do probably recover their immune systems faster after a chemotherapy than cellular therapy. But inherently, is second line really second line? It's really third line. And third line is really fourth line. And this is really third line in Zuma 12, because I'd imagine a lot of these people are getting therapy while they're waiting to get their CAR T cell. We're just not counting it as a bean counter would count it. And so we have to remember that these have to be applicable to reality, right? And what's reality is, is that you consented for if this, then that is part of Zuma 12. Just like you did with regards to Zuma 7, Belinda, Transform, that you could get CAR T-cell or you could get chemotherapy. But you take it off and put it into reality. These people are coming in hot, right? If you're Dolgo 5, you got active lymphoma in Zuma 12. If your primary refractory to R-CHOP or dose-adjusted EPOC-R, like a certain percentage did in, in the second-line trials, you don't have time to sit there and ask the insurance for permission to get single case agreements. Those are things that right now are still taking weeks to months in some cases. And so inherently, those people are going to need chemotherapy, but they're going to be getting the RICEs, the DAPs type therapies, and then getting the CAR T-cell. So I think that there's still a lot of practical issues to wade through, both in the first line kind of interim response CAR T-cell setting from a practical standpoint, as well as the second line studies in the high-risk population. So in terms of the Polarix regimen, I don't know whether you've uh, had any patients on the trial, but any sort of uh, advice or preparation for general medical oncologists who might be utilizing uh, the regimen, particularly in terms of toxicity? It kind of seemed pretty similar to RCHOP, but you tell me. Yeah, and I think my experience with utilizing polituzumab, I think, and you can argue frentuximab vidotin, because it has the same warhead in regards to MMAE. And therefore, peripheral neuropathy seemed to be the major kind of thing that you would consider thinking about, is that I think you have to be asking the right questions. It's kind of like, I can it to pralotrexate. It's like one dose too many. You got to know what questions to ask the cycle before you knew you shouldn't have given it. And so when you're talking about peripheral neuropathy, it's kind of like, what's their occupation? Are they typing? Are they a musician? And then there's, is it coming and going versus somebody who's saying, oh, it's there and it goes, or it came mostly mid-cycle and then went away by the next cycle. You're trying to be the soothsayer that says, what is this toxicity going to be? Not this cycle, but two cycles from now. So let's chat a little bit about the three second-line CAR-T trials, or quote second-line, as you say, two positive, Zuma 7 transform, one not positive, Belinda. 
One thing I was curious about is this is a CAR-T versus standard of care, not versus transplant. And they, I guess, thought that made the most sense, and I guess it does. But how many people made it to transplant? In the standard of care arms? I believe less than half kind of across the board, which is in keeping with the other trials that come before it, like Orchard would be a good example. So we knew the bar was two-thirds, one-third type of an event that, you know, really you have to look at it kind of from a pet response standpoint, those people going to transplant. And I think uh, still it's going to be confusing that a person who gets a second line CR, those people should probably still go to transplant. But are you going to get, if you have to, by an insurance standpoint, get two cycles of rice in order to get them their insurance approval? And lo and behold, they get two cycles of rice before they get apheresis. You check in there in a CR. What do you do then? Now you have insurance approval for a CAR T cell, but they're in a CR after second line chemotherapy, scratching your head to know we have decades of data. We have CAB, CIBMTR data in this setting acknowledging that inherently this is a high-risk population, right? Uh, your primary refractory or early relapsing disease based on whatever definition you want to use for the study, six, 12 months, this is an enriched population for that bad outcome. So I think it's inherently, if you have that population, I'm already talking about CAR T-cell, right? Because the odds are stacked against them to go to transplant. But I hadn't written transplant off until these trials and I guess the question is, is should we be writing off transplant? Well, let me just ask you, kind of putting aside all the technical parts of it, but just sort of thinking about it clinically, if you have a patient in a fairly common, typical relapse situation after RCHOP, understanding, you know, you have this confusing data, putting aside regulatory issues, in general, what do you think your preference would be if you had a choice? Well, I think that the one thing that this will highlight is if RCHOP or POLA or CHIP becomes the standard of care, and that's being given out in the community, right, is that this isn't easy, right? And so those patients that are relapsing, get them to us as soon as possible. I think also one of the things that's going, I'm learning is that I hadn't inherently done active surveillance scans for large cell lymphoma patients in CR1. But one of the things that I think this may change or change my thought process is maybe for those high IPI patients, fours and fives, and maybe for those double hit, triple hit lymphoma patients, maybe I need to be, I get as my CR1 PET CT, but maybe I need to be monitoring for those asymptomatic relapses because I know if they relapse, they're the high, potentially the highest risk for relapse just by data, Right maybe I need to be trying to catch their asymptomatic relapse because I know it's going to take time for me to get to their CAR T-cell therapy. If I'm going to try and do it like was done in Zuma 7 without any chemotherapy between kind of randomization and infusion. And so if I get somebody that can wait, you let them wait. But if you can't, then you have the data to kind of give them a cycle of bridging therapy like RICE, DHAP type of approaches for one cycle with the inherent odds that they're not going to respond and CAR T-cells the right thing to do. What about from eligibility point of view? I hear from a lot of people that there's some patients who they wouldn't send for autologous transplant, that they would send for CAR-T, you know, older comorbid patients. Seems like there's a little bit of an extra room there. What's your take on that? Are there 75, 80-year-old people? You're okay with CAR-T? Yes, there are. And I've taken those individuals 
that I would have maybe turned my head a little bit more from an auto trans or consolidating an auto transplant. I have classically not defined it by age. I've defined it by kind of how they tolerate their second line therapy. And for those transplant mates, I've given them a gemcitabine like Gemox based regimen. And you never know some of these people who you think are transplant knows that how much lymphoma just really messes up their body. And if you get their lymphoma under control, they kind of uh, arise like Lazarus and become transplant eligible. But the disease has a say in that. And so I often think that we've forgotten that ECOG performance status also should account for the disease. So if I have an ECOG 3 that's being driven by their lymphoma or an ECOG 2, we should be accounting for that because we know the lymphoma is dragging them down and their ECOG performance status would be markedly better. But in trials, we don't get to account for that perspective. Outside of a trial, we do. And in CAR T cell therapy, you're going in with disease, right? Almost uniformly going in with disease that can make people not feel well versus transplants. You're coming with people who you know, are going to an auto transplant large cell lymphoma with pretty darn good responses. Otherwise, they wouldn't be getting their auto transplant. So is there any way to kind of correct for the fact that these people were randomized and then didn't necessarily get to transplant? In other words, can you estimate what benefit, if any, there is to CAR-T compared to people who are ready to go to transplant? I mean, you could probably look at the people who made it to transplant, right? And so if you cut it there and then the people who got to CAR-T cell and cut it there and look at that difference, right? Because that's truly people who got to transplant versus people who got to CAR-T and see what that looks like. But I think it, it rewinds even further back than that. Truly, even in the third line setting, we're thinking about CAR T cell wrong from a practicality standpoint. In my vision of it, intent to CAR starts at the time that I, the oncologist, and my patients say, we're going down CAR T cell. The clock starts then, right? And really it's how many of 10 do you get to apheresis? And how many of those 10 at apheresis get to infusion. And, and we haven't really been able to gobble that data-wise because it's hard to do it in a clinical trial. You can only do it in a kind of a retrospective nature. And it also shows institutionally your timelines in what I call the brain-to-vein time, the time it takes you and your institution to get a patient's insurance approval, a single case agreement, and get them an apheresis slot. And that's where we're losing a lot of our large cell lymphoma patients. And it's why I think moving it earlier in this high-risk population matters because you don't want to be giving them ineffective therapy, which harms them just because you're waiting. We need to be working on the brain-to-vein time. The vein-to-vein time is pretty set with all of these constructs. It's the brain-to-vein time that we can really be improving as well as understanding what therapies we use in that setting that hurt the CAR T-cell or potentially even help the CAR T-cell. Zuma 7 and Transform, I believe, had hazard rates for progression of like around 0.4, and Belinda didn't. So if you were to kind of predict what this kind of a trial would show based on indirect comparison of prior studies of transplant and CAR T, what would you have predicted? Would you predict it at somewhere in the range of 0.4 or not that optimistic? Yeah, I think because of just what it's like to get a large cell lymphoma patient who's rituximab exposed and was either primary refractory or relapsed very early after the end of chemotherapy, 
I would have predicted that the minority of the patients were going to get to a response amenable to consolidative phytos therapy and autologous stem cell rescue. But on the flip side, if you got randomized to CAR T cell, when did your clock start? Because you're getting either no therapy and your tumor is growing or what would be arguable potentially ineffective therapy. And when did the clock start? Did it start at randomization or did it start with infusion of CAR T cell for your response evaluation? So essentially people, I think if you look at some of the trial designs, people could have had an event in one arm before there was an equal opportunity on the other arm to have an event. I don't know if that, if that makes sense, but to me, it makes sense that if we lived in the multiverse and you take two patients simultaneously and put them down the same tracks, right? And it had the same disease. One of the people would have had an opportunity to have an event called on the study before the other person at the same time point even had the opportunity to have an event. And I don't know how you account for that. It's a very hard study design to kind of think through. And I think this is why I say that people left with more questions than answers is just because some of the endpoints and definitions were different. The populations may were slightly different. What you could get if you got randomized were different. Whether or not you had access to CAR T-cell as part of the trial or outside of the trial. In the end, I think the trials are only going to lead us to an approval or, or not in this space. It's going to be outside of the trials and in the commercial environment when we're truly going to have to figure out how to use this therapy in, this, in the quote-unquote second line. There are a couple of uh, papers you presented related to the issue of either post-CAR-T or people who are not eligible for CAR-T or transplant. Of course, there we have tafacitumab, lenalidomide, POLA-BR, as well as uh, LANCA-T. Can you talk about the REMIND2 interesting analysis or study of TAFA-LEN? Can you comment a little bit on that? And also the LOTUS-3 study you talked about with LANCA-T and ibrutinib. Yeah, so the REMIND2 study, I think, is very interesting analysis where they took, you know, the people from the L-MIND study and tried to do some matching amongst characteristics and thousands and thousands of people who had either gotten R-squared or, I believe, Benda, Polar-BR, and there was other subsets, and even compared to CAR T-cell matching. I'm kind of showing in that way, if you take the trial population versus the uh, non-trial population that Tafalen had better, I think, outcomes, even in survival, I believe, in regards to comparing it to R-squared or even to Pola-BR and some of the other regimens, if you just kind of lump them all together as compendium listed or standard kind of relapse refractory regimens that Tafalen in their trial population did better. And then in the CAR T-cell kind of comparison, it appeared equivalent. I think the major knock on this study, though, could be is that you weren't comparing apples to apples. You're comparing apples to oranges. You're comparing trial patients to non-trial patients. I think it would have had more validity had they gone out and searched for tafacitumab lenalidomide-treated patients outside of the L-MIND study, and so in a real-world environment, and then showed that data of kind of real-world tafalen patients versus real-world R-squared patients matched for those characteristics. And maybe there just wasn't enough tafalen usership or follow-up at that time. So the data is what the data is. I think tafalen is a regimen that has activity in the relapse refractory DLBCL space. 
And I think it's really resurrected uh, lenalidomide, in my opinion, and given actually me more confidence to use lenalidomide at 25 milligrams. I don't know what it is about tafacitumab or the pre-meds or something, but I really struggle to get that much lenalidomide in my lymphoma patients, um, especially large cell pre-treated patients. And in the Elmine study, 80% of the patients were able to stay at 20 milligrams or greater for the 12 months of the lenalidomide or until they progressed, so on and so forth. So it may be something about what tafacitumab is doing to help lenalidomide. or Interesting. I'm just kind of curious in general. I mean, maybe you can't make generalities, but usually what comes first, POLA, BR, TAFA, LEN, or LANCA T? Depends upon if I'm, what I'm thinking. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> it comes back to as oncologists, we're like splitters, right? We're trying to play the chess game by knowing if we should move a rook, a bishop, or a pawn. And we're thinking two to three steps down the road. And if we're not, I think we're playing the wrong game for our patients. And in my mind, until I see data, more robust data that says that CD19 perturbation isn't harmful to CAR T-cell efficacy, then I'm going to try and steer clear. It's why I think if polituzumab goes to the front line, what's my new bridge? Well, my new bridge, if uh, Mosin or EPCO or GlowFit becomes available in the relapse refractory large cell lymphoma space, is that going to replace POLA because POLA went up front? They're POLA exposed in the refractory. POLA may be still there as a bridge if they're a relapse patient. I try to avoid POLA Benda if I'm going to CAR T-cell just because I think everybody's concerned about Benda's T-cell effects. But I also will remind, I remind myself that I have to have a patient that's alive in order to go to CAR T-cell. And I've gotten to people to CAR T-cell by giving them Pola Benda or Pola BR because it worked in reducing the disease that allowed them to get to CAR T-cell. And I got them there and, you know, they got that opportunity to be, in my opinion, cured with CAR T-cell therapy. Now, where Lanka and where Tafalen um, kind of sit in that strategy, I think that there's data for post-CAR T-cell treated. While it's there, it's immature. We need larger sampling. And I think that's going to be next year's ASH type of things. I think people are now thinking about this. Ask the question, would you not do a CAR T-cell on a patient that's had Lanka or TAFA? before. And I say, no, I'll give them CAR T-cell. I'm just going to slice that one out and kind of say, I need to, does anybody else have five patients? And because five times 20 centers is a hundred, right? And that's an experience that's worthy of reporting. With regards to Lanka, hard for me to know what to do with that data. What was interesting was Lanka bringing it for the GCBs or did Lanka do something to a brutinib that unlocked the key for those GCBs to have some activity that I wouldn't have necessarily expected from a brutinib. And Lanka was one of those drugs that I was uncertain if it was going to be pairable with other drugs just because of its side effect profile. But I think that they've done a good job of kind of pulling the reins back on the drug and really figuring out what's the dose, what's the interval that gives us the best chance of having efficacy with side effects, which are manageable in a situation where you want to have repeated dosing. So let's talk a little bit about mantle cell. And first, you presented some data showing a favorable effect from the introduction of BTK inhibitors, but it seemed to be more in older people. Any comments on that? 
Yeah, I think that the data is very interesting. That data has always kind of caught my eye because you can have just such humongous data sets. But does it change my approach in a 45-year-old? No. Does it change my approach in an 80-year-old? No. I think it. it I'm still going to use a BTK. In a 40-year-old, I may be looking for a BTK plus something trial. And in an 80-year-old, I may be thinking about what's the safest BTK to give in the class. So I'm curious how you select among the available BTK inhibitors, but particularly what your thoughts are about pertubrutinib. And you went over some more data with now more than 300 patients, but with 61 with mantle cell. Where are we with pertubrutinib and where do you see it heading? And what about this data that was presented at ASH? Yeah, I think it's like the kid in Disneyland that has a fast pass, right? It's an exciting drug both in regards to its efficacy right now, as it's shown that it can overcome the mutations in CLL, but it also is showing here can have activity in people who are BTK exposed in mantle cell lymphoma. And it's a once a day drug in that regard. So I don't have to worry about the twice a day, three times a day type of a setting. I think right now it's kind of sitting behind the other covalent BTK inhibitors and kind of what's its angle to get either alongside them or ahead of them. And then we have another head scratcher. What does it mean if you had a non-covalent BTK and progress? Can you get a covalent BTK? I can think of a situation where I know that that exists right now, but that's kind of maybe what we need to see. Or what's the escape mechanisms around this drug compared to the other covalent BTK inhibitors? I'm sure there are people in labs right now working on that, if not already reported. But a Bruin trial is a, is a trial that a lot of people got put onto and are continuing to get put onto, just kind of showing the excitement around this drug. So, of course, in CLL, there's a lot of discussion now about the potential for combining BTK and venetoclax up front. And now we're starting to see approaches like that in mantle cell. Uh, you reviewed the IRV study and the Bovin study, uh, the Bovin TP53, which is something else I was going to ask you about. What was your take on these two presentations? Yeah, I think that the design of a brutinib, rituximab, kind of venetoclax in that population was a smart kind of add-on design. I think that it kind of follows on from the TAM, a brutinib, venetoclax, pressive data that was in the New England Journal of Medicine paper. What really called out in that population was the TP53 responses and durability of a BTK plus venetoclax. And both those studies in the frontline setting, really these TK53 mutated patients, I don't think that, that there is a standard of care upfront regimen. And if you have the data that was the Escalon blood paper, you know, showing kind of kitchen sink therapy of your intensive, even cytarabine containing regimens, plus an auto transplant, plus maintenance for Tuxmab, those people still don't do very well. A lot of them are relapsing within the first year after auto transplant. So I think that we need to be studying this population and this combination in this area, which Bovin is doing, what this IRV is doing. I think it's an interesting approach of getting into chemo and only giving intensive chemo to the population of, in need based on risk factors. But I think that they'll try to chip away at this and maybe hyper that isn't the best regimen to be following on with. But again, it's kind of doing it in those highest risk patient population defined by their disease characteristics. And yeah, I follow up is going to be needed. So when you're doing your presentation, I jotted down here on my pad something you said, which is 
that patient who gets CAR-T in a clinical trial is not necessarily going to be have the same kind of outcomes in the community? I was reflecting upon when I first saw the consortium data with AxiCell compared to Zuma 1, and I said, it's just uncanny how these numbers match up so closely. And I knew the population was completely different, right? Because clinical trials is like boxing with the gloves on and the real world is like boxing in the alley. You're not restrained to the eligibility of the clinical trial. And that was bore out, I think, in both studies of the U.S. consortium, where in the large cell respect, I think it was something like 43% wouldn't have met eligibility for Zuma 1. And here it was 18% who had never seen a BTK inhibitor compared to Zuma 2. And so I think that there are always going to be early adopters. But I'm almost certain that that 18% that got CAR T-cell without seeing a BTK, that was bad mantle cell lymphoma, right? There was something about them, whether or not they were blastoid variant or they were primary progressive on a very intensive frontline setting that drove them to consider doing CAR T-cell in lieu of BTK. Maybe they couldn't get BTK because of insurance reasons, financial reasons. You don't know these situations when the data comes out, but... I still think the data is very good when you look at it from a real-world perspective. Again, small patient size and limited follow-up because of, of when it was approved, but still the data that needs to you know be put out there. Absolutely. A couple of words about Hodgkin lymphoma. You uh, comment on a oncology simulation model that was presented at ASHA based on Echelon 2 and that whole concept. People can check out your presentation to go through the data, but just taking a step back globally, I'm curious how you see the issue of first-line therapy and in what situations, if any, right now are you using AAVD? Yeah, I think that I would consider BBAVD in my high IPS patients with advanced-stage Hodgkin's lymphoma. I mean, obviously, it has to be advanced-stage disease outside of a clinical trial. I think as the data matures, it makes me scratch my head a little bit more. But it is the different regimen, and I think if you haven't done it, it is different than ABVD. And there is something to say about potentially dropping bleomycin as per a pet-adapted kind of raffle approach. And I know there's no bleomycin in EBABD from that standpoint. And so I've really looked, for right or wrong, I've used IPS score to kind of try to dictate how I use. But we've also got very good clinical trials going on right now. And so I've actually tried to get people on the Nevo ABD versus BBABD randomized trial in that respect, because I think that that's a, an important study. Why don't we finish out talking about the drug uh, Parsaclisib, PI3 kinase inhibitor that we saw some data on at ASH. We also saw some data on the UNITY trial of uh, ublituximab umbrilisib. We saw some more data on tazemetostat, I thought was really interesting. So can you comment a little bit on, on these uh, issues in general? Yeah, so I think people have long memories around PI3 kinase inhibitors. Going back to, I think, idelacib days, idelacib was a very active drug. I and mean, if you go back and look at the studies, you know, these were double refractory patients that just had some baggage with it around toxicities. And I can remember over time with the U2 regimen of ublituximab umbrilisib, it's kind of a, was like... When was the diarrhea, when was the colitis going to show up or LFT and transaminitis when it wasn't showing up to the degrees? It was kind of a question, well, is this PI3 kinase inhibitor different than the other PI3 kinase inhibitors like adelacid, like duvalisib, for instance, in lymphomas? 
And I think that pairing it together, you saw kind of an increase in the CR rate in the U2 study. The, still, the majority were partial remissions, but what does that translate to, right? Does that translate to longer durations of remission? Does it translate to a better PFS or overall survival? I think that that can only be told in a U2 versus U or U2 versus randomized uh, trial from that standpoint. But did it add toxicity? And I don't know that the ublituximab really added toxicity per se, but I think it did help with the response rates. And, and if you're in a population where you're trying to get to an allotransplant, you need a CR and you've gone through everything else, I think that's where an umbralisib ublituximab combination would be great. Right now, I think that's not where it's probably getting used. The same thing with parsiclisib kind of in regards to its trial data. It's another tool in the toolkit in indolent lymphomas, both in marginal zone and follicular lymphoma. Is it going to replace CAR T-cell, I think, in the follicular lymphoma space? Probably not. I think the people who are destined to get CAR T-cell will get CAR T-cell. And then if those people recur and fourth line, you're probably going to see that's where the PI3 kinase inhibitors are going to sit. I'm not sure that they're going to move into the second line space where I think linolenoid-based regimens have kind of a stranglehold in the second line of follicular lymphoma space. I think tasmetostat has the ability to move forward. R-squared plus tasmetostat appears to be a very parable drug. I don't know if it's being studied with PI3 kinase inhibitors, but PI3 kinase inhibitors are going to need a boost with another drug, I think, to move it next to uh, lenalidomide. We know that there's a toxicity aversion with lenalidomide and at least the PI3 kinase inhibitors that have been tried to pair with it, and therefore everybody else has shied away from it. I think the class that's really going to be the biggest disruptor to those drugs, but potentially a helper to the patients, are the bites that I talked about, Glowfit, plus or minus obinutuzumab, or mosinutuzumab. I think what's going to really shake out here is where you give it, how you give it, and for how long you give it in, in, in the lymphomas. And so if you can give it sub-Q with little toxicity and good response rates, is that going to be better than IV or not? And I think that that's what we have to sort out with these bites is, is really how do we use them and in what setting. But again, there's a lot of bites going on in, in lymphoma with great data. Can you comment a little bit more about what we know about uh, these two uh, bispecific mosinutuzumab and glofitimab? There was more data presented at ASH and actually some data with obinutuzumab with glofitimab. Can you talk about your experience with these agents in terms of tolerability and where you see them eventually, like say in the next year or two, fitting in? Yeah, interesting question, Dr. Love, because in the development of these bites, we as an institution had to decide, are we going down the CAR T-cell clinical trial route or are we going down the bite clinical trial route? And so as they made their soiree into large cell lymphoma, because we were doing CAR T-cell, we missed that boat. And we're just trying to get into the game to get some experience with bites in kind of large cell, mantle cell, and follicular. So I can't comment too much about primary institutional use, but when I look at the AE profiles, one of the things that I noticed is that obinutuzumab is bringing some apparent toxicity, if you will, on an AE log? And is it driving really any efficacy when you add it to glofitimab? And so I think that's why you saw the plus minus obinutuzumab. And in my mind, I didn't see too much downside to glofitimab alone, right? And I don't see EPCO or Mosin 
or ondronexumab running out to do a trial plus a monoclonal antibody. So I'm really curious to see where this will go. I think we're going to see bites plus data, bites plus polituzumab, bites plus lenalidomide, like we're starting to see some of that data in, in clinical trials. My mind is really curious. I'm sure there were people sitting here going when rituximab was being added to chemotherapy, it's like, oh, it's not going to work because it needs the immune system to be there in order to work. And lo and behold, rituximab worked with chemotherapy. Now, as we see these bites try and move into frontline or with chemotherapy partners, people like me who didn't live through the rituximab era, so I didn't have an opportunity to have those thought bubbles, but I'm living in this era and I'm having those thought bubbles of, gosh, are bites going to be able to do what they need to do in engaging a T cell and the B cell in an environment where you have cytoxin or doxorubicin or polituzumab running around next door, kind of confounding the picture. And I'm excited to see the next chapter in lymphoma management is where bites and we try and figure out the best pairs. I think the biggest thing that I take away and I'm encouraged by is that people are getting in the sandbox together and figuring out if they can get along. Far too long, there's been an aversion to this, and I think it's slow development of therapeutics and oncology in general. But I hope that if the pandemic allows us, over time, we need to come together as a treating community and be more accepting of getting drugs that aren't owned by the same companies to work together to try and get to our AAA-type concept for lymphoma. So final question. Just kind of curious if you had access to mosinituzumab, which seems like it might be likely in the future, although I'm curious what your thoughts are, what would come first, mosinituzumab or a PI3 kinase inhibitor? What I know now, I think that I probably would do a bite before a PI3 kinase inhibitor. And that might be because it's a shinier new toy, but I would also be thinking mosin to what? And is it Mosin because it's a fixed duration? Is it continuous? What's the cost of the patient? Am I thinking CAR-T? Am I not thinking CAR-T? What's the pace of the disease? Does it look like it's on the precipice of transformation? Or is it kind of that limping snail's pace? You know, because that may float me towards a PI3 kinase inhibitor if it's a follicular lymphoma that has a history of being a snail and not a cheetah. Yeah, I was working with somebody the other day and I saw a waterfall plot, one of the PI3 kind, I don't even remember which one it was. And it was pretty impressive. And I was thinking, everybody talks so much about the delayed immune issues and side effects and all. Are these really effective drugs? Because it kind of looked like a pretty impressive waterfall plot. I mean, do you see effective long-term clinical responses? Yeah, no, I definitely think you can with the PI3 kinase inhibitors. I think what happened was the toxicities drug it down and people had long memories with this class. And I think the class has really struggled to break away from that situation. And I think umbralisib certainly has efficacy. Parsiclisib certainly has efficacy. ME401 has activity. And there's several PI3 kinase inhibitors that are outside of heme malignancies that have efficacy in solid tumor oncology. So certainly the class works. And I think, you know, it's just one of those things where if it works well enough, we'll figure out the toxicities because our patients are benefiting. Checkpoint inhibitors is a great example of that. This concludes our program. Special thanks to Dr. Lunning, and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Oncology Today.